Hello, Small Fortune podcast listeners. We have a double header today. We are releasing two uh, interviews with Russ Weiss. Uh, the first one I recommend you go back and listen to, episode 12, if you're listening to episode 13 first, in which he discusses his very successful career and gives some ideas about both whether you're a potential senior manager or somebody who hires senior managers and what the key might be to having a longevity in your position. So recommend you go listen to that. But we are here today because news broke when we talked last week about the Gomberg Fredrickson or GFA BW166 report, John Moore, Marco. Let me give them all a shout out and a thank you as the industry, because of course, if you're Constellation or Gallo or whomever, you can do this research yourself. But these folks are genuinely curious. They're doing the work so that uh, folks who don't have their own research arms can figure out what's going on. And, and what they said last week was, hey, we're not exactly sure what's going on, but there's like a 9% drop in wholesale sales. And I saw a couple of little explainers real quick, and then we'll get to it. First of all, be aware that these stats do not include all wine sales. They don't include DTC. They're very specific way they conjure up these details, but it's primarily the wholesale market. The other thing to keep in mind is that oh, a couple little explainers. Number one, distributor inventory. This is something I, when I started doing this work, I had no idea because I was a banker. All we cared about was what the winery shipped out the cellar door. That was it. We looked at those are reflected as sales. We looked at inventory and how that related to sales, but we did not really bother too much past that. When I got to the M&A, I learned, oh, there's this thing called distributor inventory, and it can be meaningful. And in, in transactions, people like to look at distributor inventory if they can. And the reason is because folks with power can push wine out the door into the distributor inventory. The smaller guys really can't, but it's become a habit in transactions. People want to see what's sitting out there on the distributor's shelves. But then in this most recent story, all of a sudden, there's a query about what's happening with inventories at the retail, at the on-premise, which is a fancy way of saying restaurants. What's going on at that level? I've asked Russ back because I happen to know that he's, in his experience as former president of Silverado Vineyards and as a senior executive at Robert Mondavi before that, he's aware of these sort of mechanics. And so I, we didn't have enough time in uh, <laughs> episode 12 to talk about it. So uh, we've come back and I, I appreciate, Russ, you spending a time sharing what you know about these set of facts and how to manage around them. So take it away. Yeah, uh, great pleasure uh, to be back. Thank you, Carol. Always great to chat. Not a particularly joyous topic, I'd <laughs> say. I think, and some of it may be some of it may be too soon to tell, right? I think that it's interesting, though, that number is around 9%. It's a shocking number. I I don't think in my career, I don't think I, I ever saw that. We went through some recessions in my career. We went through this, that, and the other thing. Different parts of the business had different um, reactions to different things. The, the euro exchange is always one of those things that you point at. When the dollar gets strong, importers start crying and it, it, it's there, there are things that influence different segments but to have the whole segment reporting that kind of number is pretty pretty surprising and so i think it's a, if we hadn't had i don't know why we wouldn't have had a wake-up call before but if we haven't had it it's certainly here now and i think but that being said i think one of the funny things about that number is it's almost exactly a month of it's almost exactly a month of inventory yeah the easiest thing, easiest possible thing to say is that Southern and RNDC and everybody else just decided to change their algorithm 
Right. <laughs> Click. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. We're going down 30 days. And that may be true. But I think the one of the things that we we used to feel like we were very sophisticated when we knew what our wholesale inventory was and our wholesale depletions were. And I don't think my my tenure, the, the back part of my tenure at Silverado, we worked very hard to go beyond that. I had a good, a lot of good teachers who came into Robert Madavi as brand managers who were coming from fast-moving CPG organizations and looking at how we track sales. And they were completely befuddled because they couldn't understand how a sale actually was parking wine in somebody else's warehouse. <laughs> That's not a sale. <laughs> so they introduced me to the concept of pantry loading and, and that that's a, that's the whole idea that you're, you're doing these huge sales for consumer products and you're just moving the inventory from the retailer into somebody's um, kitchen pantry. And it's still there. It's not like you can consume mayonnaise any faster, particularly, I guess, I suppose you could, I like mayonnaise, but <laughs> <laughs> probably wouldn't, you know, <laughs> probably doesn't fit my new year's resolution, but pantry loading is a concept as well. And it happens, it happens all the time with restaurants as well, because they'll have a deal from the wholesaler on a mixed case of something. And that deal could be just simply there's a price off, or it could be that the terms are a little bit extended or whatever. And, and then a restaurant will buy in on that and have a seller full of stuff that doesn't actually move that fast. And if, if you're in an, if you're in an environment where you think that's, you, you come up to OND and you've been pantry loading and then suddenly a OND is very soft in terms of consumer pull through, suddenly you've got a big problem and that just backs up all the way to the, all the way to, to the supplier. My experience being a smaller, on the smaller end of it, my, first of all, my experience at Robert Davi is it hardly matters how big you are. Your leverage is limited. Yeah, that's right? fair. And it's limited, not in the way I think some people would think. You're going to, you're going to pound your shoe on the table and, and get what you want. It's limited. It's limited by the logic of having a consumer brand. It doesn't make any sense to park things in mm. somebody else's warehouse. It just doesn't. There's no logic to that. If you're, if you got a, a skew that's just flying, there's a huge logic to getting out ahead of the demand that is continually outstripping the, the wholesaler's policy on, on stock and on stock holding. But if, if you're in a different market, it, it doesn't make any sense. Why would you why would you as a supplier who has more channel options than merely, I don't mean merely, but then U.S. wholesale, you've got export options, you have duty-free options, you have travel, travel retail, you have your, you have all these options. Why would you park wine somewhere else where you are limiting those options to discounting it? <laughs> yeah, no, that's a fair comment. Yeah, if you so allow it to pile up and... Right. and your wholesaler across a bunch of big states yeah. and they're not moving it. And uh, even, and, and you, you either got to drag it back and send it somewhere or, else. Or. And especially, especially if you're smaller, you need to be, there's no use being small unless you're also agile. Yeah. Otherwise you're just small. <laughs> even in the wholesale system, we had moments where uh, I'm not, uh, I'm just making this up, but let's say there was, there were moments when a, when a, Tennessee was doing 
practically nothing, but Georgia was flying. So why would you move something to Tennessee when you then can't move it to Georgia or the incredible laws that you have to jump through to move from wholesaler to wholesale? It's incredible. So even if you're going to say that you want to play big in the wholesale system, you need the flexibility to go where even that system is working for you. And so I think that's the first thing is that when you're asking to load up something, that's that you really need to make sure that you're just totally desperate before you make that ask because you're really tying your own hands. Yeah, that's an important fact. Yeah. And I I think you had mentioned something too about the habit of wanting the any given distributor to represent a product line and how that can create distortions. Absolutely. And so that's the other thing, even if you like, just as you might have a state that's doing better than an adjacent state, you're certainly going to have a skew that's doing better than an adjacent skew and forcing that wholesaler to take the whole book gives, gives them an, you let them out of the narrative that you are successful and that they need to keep ordering. You're a very successful wine because you might be a hundred percent successful on your Cabernet and your Merlot is languishing. And because the Merlot is languishing, the whole, the whole brand gets a smell about it out with Mm. the wholesaler reps. It's like you're, you're flogging this thing that nobody wants. And if you do that enough, then they think nobody wants the whole package. Mm. Even if you have SKUs that are just flying. So you have to be very, you have to be very disciplined about that. And there, there is nothing more important than being super clear-eyed about your own wines in the marketplace. If you're super clear-eyed, you can find a seam and you can make things happen. But if you're not clear-eyed, you want to ignore the problem and you just think, hey, wholesalers aren't what they used to be. They should be brand builders. Well, listen, you're the brand builder. You own the brand, unless unless you're unless there's a possibility you want to sell it to the wholesaler, (laughs) (laughs) not you, not an ordinary thing to do. (laughs) You own the brand. And when you're, when you're asking for a load in on something, even if they'll do it, which those days are thin on the ground, those are thin on the ground. You can get somebody to do you a favor every now and then. But even if you're asking for a load in, you're just, you're giving your brand equity to somebody else. Who, you're you're taking future profits. You're you're creating well, some sales now at the expense of future sales. Yeah, yeah it, exactly. You're mortgaging, and and there's a, I understand the impulse if you're you. Everybody's got their liquidity questions to to sure. deal with, but you are absolutely handing over the brand to somebody else, and the only way that's going to leave that wholesaler is by discounting. And so, so as a small winery, or a, which could be 150,000 or 200,000 cases or 30,000, whatever, if you're small enough to not matter, in a sense, no, no offense, you're the one who has to manage your brand. Yeah. And you have to manage it all the way from the minute it leaves, the, the minute that you make it all the way to the consumer opens that bottle. And when we were speaking last week, you made mention of some kind of technique or technology. Oh, that you- technology is really helping this process. So my advice for small wineries is pick your best thing and pick your best places. It don't, it, somebody might show up at your doorstep and, and say, listen, you, you're going to be big in Michigan right but unless you're ready to go to unless you yourself are ready to go to michigan and make sure you're big in michigan i don't think you should go there mm-hmm. but it seems let's see hey somebody's going to give me a half a pallet order on something yeah terrific but 
that's mm, you you got to you have to understand your customers and there's plenty of software platforms that attach to your wholesaler data and can and can absolutely tell you exactly who your customers are and exactly what their order cadence is and exactly when you're at risk of, of being delisted on premise and off premise and that's what you need to do but you've got to be able you have to be able to do that you you have to have the time to do that or the personnel to do that the bandwidth essentially and it's funny when i did some postgraduate work at at the business school at kellogg at northwestern and my favorite my favorite moment was when we were in a we were in a financing class and and part of it was the things to look at with m and a and in a very unusual in a very unusual moment the uh, professors asked us all where what disciplines we were from and a lot of the folks in the room were cfos and he's like, two-thirds of the room isn't going to like to hear this but sales people drive sales activity like people he says people ask me like what should i should i step up my sales force and he says, listen a bad salesperson is better than a not salesperson right <laughs> <laughs> and you can't deploying the technology is like you can't do everything yourself so you have to either find fractional salespeople or your own internal professionals who are really good at not just the wholesale level, but at the retail level, and you have to give them the tools. There are plenty of platforms that you can that you could purchase that just pop data out of your wholesaler and into a dashboard for you where by account, you know, whether they're a red light or a green light or a caution flag or or whatever the dashboard looks like, and can tell you in real time, hey, those guys, that's not a cold call. They actually used to buy a lot from you. They haven't bought for six months or Hey, that that's a viable account. They're moving, they're moving six bottles a, a month or 10 bottles a month. And you just need to keep the love going, right? Mm -hmm. So you can adapt your approach. And it isn't like you have to do all of that, but it's giving that list of, hey, th these people used to be terrific customers. Mr. Let's Ms. find out Ms. Wholesale, why don't we why don't we do a little program where your team doesn't do a cold call, but goes back to people who used to love us and reminds us that we're that we're still here, right? Remind them that, that we're still here. So we had a lot of success doing that, being very granular, not doing it all ourselves. Obviously, what you want your salespeople to do if you're a small winery is to be force multipliers. Mm -hmm. so there's a, that's, a, that's another challenge, I think, when you're running a small winery is you get salespeople and they want to, you're usually getting them out of the wholesale environment anyway they're wanting to make the leap over to the the producer side of the business yet the thing that they know how to do is sell individual accounts which is fine if it's high spotting you gotta you want to be in per se in new york and your person knows how to do that that's terrific that's a that's like marketing it's not even really sales because the the turnover there is going to be very limited but it's great to be there. So yeah. it's a shop window, but you have to don't fall into the trap of the, the idea that your people ought to be doing individual account calls. You, what they ought to be doing is managing that wholesale sales force to the best effect. And the only way to do that is to give them information where, you know, just like any team, you give them, a coach gives them a game plan and it works. They're going to, they're going to want to do it again because they're all on commission and that puts money in their pocket. You give them a plan that doesn't work. They're like, Next time it's like, yeah, thanks for the Friday afternoon pizza, but 
Yeah, they're not going to pay my bills. Yeah, and thanks for the promo, but mm, it's just not going to work. I've and heard people. It, sorry, it, go ahead. I'm sorry, but data really. There's be honest with yourself, but get as much data as you can, um, because there Fair there much. are whole seams. We always had a challenge at Silverado with, yeah, like overall, if you just said, hey, the brand is look at our policy is 40 days of inventory, right, and you guys are at 43, right. And you, you look at that and you go, oh, I guess we I guess we need to work on those amazing three days. But then you'd look at Sylvian Block and it's, guys, you have six days of inventory. If you ordered now, you would run out of wine. Mm. So if you're talking at the brand level, you're always gonna you're always gonna be out of stock and you're always gonna be long on something. It just that's not the way to do it. You really have to do it by channel, by skew. You gotta get you, there's no lightweight. In sales management, there isn't. You got to be in the weeds. You have to be in the weeds. Interesting. Yeah, and I know very little about it to be honest. Any other tips, tricks in terms of how to deal? I, one of the things, Jeremy Benson. I did an interview with him a couple times ago. I don't know. Look it up if you want to hear it. And he talked about the idea of piloting as a way to manage. And this is this is, doesn't relate to the specific problem at the moment, but the broader problem of, and he talked about creating a, a market push in one market it, to your point, which is you have to find what's working. And it's easier to try to find what's working in some small market somewhere and then extrapolate that, repeat that success elsewhere, rather than saying, okay, we're going to do this big program across all markets. So what are your thoughts about that idea? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, and I would just say that the wrinkle to that at Silverado that was that we were intensely focused on our, on our direct consumers when we, when we looked at key market penetration. Oh, you tell. are. So yeah. So we, we made a whole bunch of really cool single vineyard, single clone groovy stuff that are direct clients had exclusive access to that everybody delicious stuff and everybody loved it. The two wines that we had in the portfolio that were for broad market were the estate Cabernet and the Miller Ranch Sauvignon Blanc. So those were wines that we didn't really have in the regular assortment for DTC, mm -hmm. but they were wines that our club members and list members totally appreciated. They love those wines. And so what we tried to do was geo map our concentration of customers and focus on retailers and restaurateurs that were in the middle of those clusters. God. Because we already had, if you think about your, if you think about your fantastic wine customers as a smaller winery, they love you think about the way they talk about you. It's funny. It's my customers used to say, well, I love Silverado, man. That's my winery. Of course. It's like, it's <laughs> oh, their winery. <laughs> oh, got you. Okay. So you can I see imagine. What you mean. Yeah. yeah. So you can imagine if it, if they've got, if it's their winery and they're in St. Louis and they go to, I don't know, they go to their favorite steakhouse and you're not there you're not supporting their narrative that they own a, they, they have emotional <laughs> ownership of an awesome winery, right? <laughs> so you better be there with your Miller Ranch by the glass, Sylvian Blanc, and you better be like on the half bottle list and the full bottle list and the Magnum list with your estate cab because they, they own you already. And what they want to do is they're sitting there with some pals and 
what they want to do is, oh, hey, <laughs> uh, I know what to order. Hey, listen, this is my winery. Like, you guys, have you ever been? Oh, you haven't been there? Oh, you're, you guys are out of your mind. Silverado's the bomb. So we geo-targeted our wholesaler penetration based on our club member concentration. And so you, you already have a customer base that is going to pull that wine through. Rather than trying to explain to somebody who's never heard of you, uh, really seriously, you're going to like this. You're really, you are so dependent on all those intermediaries to tell that story correctly yeah. and get. It's like the fun game. By the time, yeah. By, by the by the time you get done, you don't even really know what the story is going to be unless you have amazing wherewithal to go all the way around that and do, I don't know, major ad campaigns or something. So you're really dependent on the wholesale salesperson, their equity. Like they're trying to sell somebody something. And if it doesn't work, then they lose their own value in the marketplace. They're suggesting to their customers who are their, it's, it's the wine business. All your customers are your pretend friends. And so they're <laughs> suggesting to their friends something that, that doesn't work. And so they're not going to do that again if it doesn't work. Got it. And so you have to give them a game plan that suggests something that's really going to work. And I don't think there's anything more powerful than your existing ambassadors who are sitting there waiting for you to actually finally get a listing in their favorite neighborhood restaurant. Yeah. They're just waiting for you to do that. <laughs> yeah, no, that is a fantastic idea. I love that. Any other thoughts on the issue? One it, 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 one of the things that occurs to me is, didn't we learn the, the supply chain problem in 2020? Why, if, if it is a destocking yeah. at the retail retailer, wholesaler level. It's, I think we've seen this before. <laughs> Why do you want to get it down to just in time? How does that even make sense? Yeah. And especially with smaller wineries, it just doesn't because there's no, like you, you know, some of those numbers are just meaningless. We're at 25 days now. That's, that's terrific. You get, you get to buy the glass account and suddenly you're at zero days, <laughs> you know, just, yeah. and you sold two cases. It's some of those numbers are funny. But it's a, listen, the wholesaler is, even a smaller wholesaler is such complexity in the business now that the only way they can wrap their arms around their carrying costs are to have these tools. So you just have to live with them. I hope, I hope it is a destocking issue, Carol. I'm actually quite worried. I think John made a couple of really scary points the other day and about just our consumer base and what's really happening there. And I would say that if worse comes to worse, we're going to discover, if we discover that this isn't some product chain, I mean, and it, and it could be some combination of both. Listen, sure. restaurants, sure. restaurant business, man, I'm not, my friends in the restaurant business are suffering and I'm not hearing super great things. Mm. And it wasn't exactly the best holiday in the world for them. And they can't help it. They got to rationalize. They can't of be, course. they can't be stacking up your wine. And as much as they love you, that's not. They're not in the, they're not in the uh, aging and reselling business. That's, <laughs> that's yeah. Well, hopefully my this only, is a hiccup. Well, my only, but my only, yeah, it might be, but my only, this kind of reminds me of the mid eighties before, before 60 minutes gave all of us boomers permission to go buy a bunch of stuff that we liked anyway. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, it reminds me of that in, in the sense that well, things are bad. I, I remember 86, 87, we're all wringing our hands about neo-prohibitionism and people drinking vodka instead of wine. And it, it sounds a little bit familiar. Now we had this incredible boomer thing that happened in 
that's a that's a a generational event. I don't know what to say about that particularly, but I think the challenge is that if we are truly in a re reset button on wine consumption generally, the challenge for an individual is I tip over my king and push the timer button and walk away from the chess table or what, what am I supposed <laughs> to be doing? So I think that my only advice is if you love what you're doing and if you love what you're making and you think it's really delicious, it, all, all this means is that th it's going to be slightly harder to sell things than it used to be. So you're going to need to be slightly better. And it's like the old, the old golfer on the you know, on the, on the Florida golf course, it's, I, the guy sees an alligator and he's boy, I hope you run fast. And the other guy says, I have to do is run faster than you. <laughs> you know, the alligator's out there and what you've got to do is run faster than, than, than your cop said. And that means you just need to get deeper into where you really are, where you really have success and push on that because there's still business out. There's a lot, it's a big business. Yeah. Yeah. There's business yeah. out there. And you just just double down on on finding your own seam and mining that seam. Brilliant, wise words. Thanks, Coach. Uh, <laughs> I hope uh, folks will listen to this and uh, take some some comfort in the idea that you we all you saw this in the mid eighties. Uh, yeah, I was a yeah. beer drinker at that particular time in my well, life. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> Thank right. you so much. Russ. Thanks, Carol. Always good right. to talk. Bye. Hi, Small Fortune listeners. If you found this episode enjoyable, we'd really love to have you as a follower. And we're on almost all of your favorite podcast platforms. So if you could take a moment and subscribe or follow, we'd really appreciate it. Also, if you have any questions for Carol, please email us at smallfortunepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks. We'll just have at it, see Perfect. if we can help some people. And you're in the catbird seat because you don't have to sell wine into the system anymore. Say one or two things that other people may not. I don't have a dog in the hunt. Exactly. <laughs> exactly.